Well, as we uh, continue this morning in this time of worship, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 1. We're in this series uh, thinking about and uh, considering and hopefully applying to our lives principles of leadership. You know, we started this a couple of weeks ago and with the notion that, uh, that there are some people that would say that uh, there are only some of you that are leaders. I like what uh, George Barna in his book, uh, Fish Out of Water, on his book on leadership, he says that some of you are habitual leaders, meaning that you were, you were born to lead. In every situation that you're in, in every place you go, you're looking for an opportunity to lead. You're the one that always volunteers to be the team leader or jump up and take charge. You want that ball in your hands when there's two seconds left on the clock and you're down by two points and somebody's got to make the three-pointer. Some of you are like that. You live for that. You thrive on that. Others of you may not live for that, but you're still leaders. There are going to be many situations in your life, and Barna calls you a situational leader, where there are going to be tons of situations, whether becoming a father or a mother, or stepping into a job that there are certain people that are required to report to you, or taking leadership in your own life about the disciplines of going to school, or doing the work that's being asked of you, or even your own moral and spiritual life, taking some leadership to where you're actually applying some leadership principles to your own heart management, or what I call soul care. So whether you're a habitual leader, and we love you people, as long as you don't beat us up too much, or whether you're a situational leader where when you're pushed into those moments, you need to call upon the gifts of leadership to be responsible with the situation that God's placed you in, we all should take up the principles and the points of leadership. You with me? How are you guys feeling this morning? All right? Okay. All right, we're awake. Can you guys hear in the back? All right? Yeah, let's hear it from the back row. Okay, thank you. You guys like this building? That's pretty tight, isn't it? Yeah, all right. No sling this week. I have a broken collarbone for those of you that are uh, back uh, from the summer for the first time. This is my first week without a sling. I'm rehabbing the shoulder. Some things hurt. Uh, I tried to clip my hedges yesterday. Guess what? That wasn't a good idea. When you start seeing white spots and you've only been out in the sun for two minutes, something's hurting. So if you were at my house yesterday afternoon with the women's uh, gathering, you may have noticed how the front hedges kind of do this. Because I could only hold the hedge clipper up for so long and then it uh, dipped down. Well, let's get back to leadership. Last week we talked about that there was a foundation that was poured in Joshua's life uh, before he was ever asked to be a leader. He learned how to follow, how to submit himself to another person, how to actually find another person and give them authority in his life. That's huge. And it's something that we should all endeavor to do. We talked about how he was faithful, that he learned through perseverance uh, a gift that God was given him to be faithful. In James chapter 1, it talks about how perseverance is used by the Lord to mature us. And so he learned how to wait. And then the third thing we talked about is that he did something that is remarkable. And that was that he decided that he was going to stop watching people experience God and he was going to start experiencing God. He became a worshiper. He had watched Moses for 40 years go up to mountaintops in the tent of meeting. But then he decided, as we read last week, that he was going to become a worshiper. He went from an observer to a participant. 
And that's huge for us if we're pouring the foundation for leaderships in our own lives. So, let's go to chapter 1. We're in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, if you don't have a uh, Bible, we have house Bibles in the, uh, in the cabinet in the back. If you don't own a Bible, take one of those. It's yours, okay? Or if you don't have a Bible that you can write in uh, because your grandparents gave it to you and you feel like that would somehow, you know, discredit their gift or something, write in ours, okay? You can put my name in it and say, this is Randy's Bible. He said I could write in it, whatever. But take notes and record what the Lord is doing in your own life and what the Holy Spirit is teaching you, okay? Joshua chapter 1. What page is it on? 149. Is that the house Bible or your own personal Bible? Okay, the house Bible. All right. After the death of Moses, who was the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, let me just stop right there because I feel sorry for Joshua's father that he went through life with that name. But anyway, sorry. The Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid. He was Moses' aid for 40 years. This is what the Lord said. Moses, my servant is dead. Now, I want to stop right there. Because uh, this is really vital that we don't miss what was just said. Uh, I mean, it is critical. When I was in high school uh, in Louisiana, everybody was required to go through driver's education before you could get a driver's permit. Did anybody have to do uh, driver's ed? Wow. Did anybody here fail driver's ed? You'd never admit it in public, would you? All right. So I was, uh, it's a summer course, and so you go to school, you sign up, and you go to school. And they pair you up with another student, and then they give you an instructor. And most of the instructors were the football coaches who needed to make money in the summertime. All right? Any of you had this experience? So my coach was Coach Asher, all right? And he was, he was probably the grumpiest man alive. And he had, like, he wore those nylon shorts, okay? We're talking coaches' shorts. Now think with me, this is 1976, all right? So they were very inappropriately short. But trust me, back then, they were cool. But I think that's all he owned. So he had, you know, the nylon shirt and then shorts and then, you know, the school, you know, gray uh, athletic T-shirt, a newspaper, and a jar of pickles. Okay. So he, he assesses us and he looks at us and he talks to us for a minutes because his plan is I'm going to read the newspaper, I'm going to eat pickles, and just ride along uh, and make money. That's it, all right? So we, he looks at us and he kind of assesses which of the two of us uh, probably is the worst driver. Now, how he did that assessment, I don't know. Um, I had long hair. I was probably stoned. And, you know, and he probably didn't want me driving first anyway. We need to let him sober up a little bit. So he turned to the other guy, and he goes, okay, you're our first driver. So we get in the car, and Coach Asher, you know, is, I mean, he, even when he says good morning, it sounds like he's asking you to do something, you know? Yes, I'll, I'll have a good morning. And so... He tells the guy, he says, okay, now, okay, check your mirrors. You know, he's going through his checklist, seat belts. Although I don't think cars had seat belts in the 70s. Um, but then he goes through all that. And he says, okay, there's the brake, there's the accelerator, D is for drive, let's go. So he gets his newspaper out, gets his pickle, and I'm not lying. And he, he goes, let's go. So we don't move. And he puts his newspaper down, and he goes, come on, man, let's go. And the student goes, I have one question. And he goes, what's that? And he goes, how do you start this thing? 
Immediately we knew that, that we had leapfrogged over this guy's uh, knowledge level of driving cars. He had never driven a car before in his life. That was a great adventure. I'll tell you that story another time because he wrecked the car while we were going through driver's education. <laughs> Coach Asher, I wish I had a film, a, a camera to film what he did when that happened. But you can't skip over vital stuff. And this is vital, what I'm about to say. Because this is what the Lord said. This is vital, and it's one word. It's the word now. The Lord is calling Joshua to live in the now. Now, when I wrote that down last night, I thought, you know, man, that sounds so sagey. Like, you know, like some guru on a mountain. But live in the moment. Which is very different than living for the moment. I mean, we live in a culture that is constantly living to try to milk out of the moment as much joy and happiness and fulfillment and excitement and adrenaline as we possibly can. And so we have this motto, I live for the moment, as if the past has no consequence, the future has uh, no bearing on the present. But that's not what uh, God is saying to Joshua right here. It means something very different. As leaders, we cannot afford to give up the now. In your leadership, in your life, in who you are, you cannot afford to give up the now because the now is vital. We often trade the now for a past that we cannot change or for a future that might never come. And we are often giving up the now. Let me talk about this for a minute. And maybe we can get some sense out of this. Because it seems very clear in my mind. <laughs> May not in yours. Uh, we often trade the now for a past that we cannot change. You know, the past can rob us of living in the now. Let me give you an example. Let's take your family, for example. Now, there's a couple things that I know about your family. First, let me say that I know that some of you, uh, on this end of the extreme, your family is a nightmare. It is a train wreck. That if you got up here and started talking about your childhood and what your parents are like, if you had parents or what your upbringing was like, I mean, it would wreck all of us. And I just want to acknowledge that I am so sorry that so many of you have horror stories when it comes to you talking about your family system. And some of you in this room say, well, you know, man, I had a great family system. I mean, I love my parents. I talk to them every day. You know, we have a great relationship. And you grew up in a home that was nurturing and caring, and they celebrated who you were, you know, and, and you're just feeling great about family life and all those things. No matter where you are on that scale of extremes, from the perfect family to the train wreck family, let me tell you something that I know that's true about you whether you were raised by foster parents or whether you were raised by both your parents or one of your parents or one parent in Utah and one parent in Florida, whatever your situation is, you were raised by people who were sinners. They were broken, messed up people. And their brokenness may be on a scale of horrific to beautiful. But all of us come out of family systems that are broken. All of us do. You do. I know you do. I do. And when we come out of our family systems, our family systems, they have rules. Now, I'm not talking about you've got to be in bed by 10 o'clock, you know? I mean, that is a rule. Uh, that's a rule in my life. Uh, no, I'm kidding. 
You know, but we all have we all have families that have rules that taught us how to think about certain things, taught us uh, our philosophy about certain areas of our lives. In uh, Peter Scazzaro's uh, book, The Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he talks about this, and he talks about the family Ten Commandments, and he gives some examples of maybe what your family's Ten Commandments were. Let me hit you with a few of them. All right. Let's talk about your family's commandment about money. What did your family teach you about money? Maybe your family taught you that money is the best source of security. Or maybe your family taught you the more money you have, the more important you are. Maybe your family taught you that making lots of money will prove that you've made it. I don't know. What did your family teach you about money? What about conflict? What did your te family teach you about conflict? Did your family say, avoid conflict at all costs? I was on a, a ministry trip once, and uh, whenever I go on these trips, sometimes I look for the conflict, because that's where God just starts to work, man. It's like the, you know, it's just like the good spot. And so we had this conflict, and this one girl on our trip just started screaming. Ah! Like, and just ran out of the room. She could not handle conflict because her family system was any conflict is bad. Run from it. Or maybe your family said, don't get people mad at you. Or maybe your family taught you the Ten Commandments of conflict is loud anger and constant fighting is normal. That maybe that's the only place people will ever be honest with you is when they get really mad. What about sex? Well, what about it? What did your family teach you about that? Did it say that it's not to be spoken about openly and you can't believe that I just used that word in a sermon? Or maybe that men can be promiscuous, but women must be not. Our sexuality and marriage will come easily. Of course it will. We can talk about that another time. What did your family teach you about grief and loss? Did it teach you that sadness is a sign of weakness? Did it teach you that you're not allowed to be depressed? Did your family teach you that get over losses quickly and move on? Just get over it. Grow up. What did it teach you about expressing anger? Anger maybe is dangerous and bad. Did your family teach you that explosions in anger are the only way to make a point? Did your family teach you that sarcasm is an acceptable way to release anger? What did your family teach you about that? Or how about family? What was the commandment your family taught you about family? That you owe your parents for all they've done for you? Maybe your family taught you that you don't speak of your family's dirty laundry with anybody. We keep secrets. Maybe your family commandment is duty to family comes before everything else in your life. What about relationships? What did your family teach you about relationships? Don't trust people, they'll let you down. Did your family teach you nobody will ever hurt you again? Did your family teach you don't ever show vulnerability? Always be strong. Don't let people in. What about attitudes toward different cultures? What did your family teach you? Only be close to friends with people who are like you? Did your family teach you do not marry any person outside your race or culture? Did your family tell you that certain cultures and races are not as good as yours? 
What did your family teach you? How about success? Did your family teach you certain things about what success is and what success is not? Did your family teach you that getting into the best schools is real success? Or how about making lots of money is real success? Or how about is getting married and having children? That's what real success is. Or finally, the Ten Commandments, what do they teach you about feelings and emotions? Did they teach you that you're not allowed to have certain feelings? Did they teach you maybe your feelings aren't important? Or reacting to your feelings without thinking is okay? Hear what he says. You know, you can easily add a lot of stuff to this list. Like what messages did you receive about parenting or gender roles or marriage or singleness, physical affection and touch? How did your family view God, other churches, other faiths? It is essential that we reflect on the messages that we were handed down to us, submitting them to Christ in his word. A common deadly commandment that prevails inside and outside the church is this. You must achieve to be loved. In other words, we must be competent in the context of competition. When it comes to school, sports, recreation, work, neighborhood, church, to feel of worth and value. As a result, many people struggle with an achievement addiction. It never seems like enough. We constantly feel inferior, and many of us know the experience of being approved for what we do. Few of us know the experience of being loved for being just who we are. See, it's funny how uh, our family, and every family's done it, whether you're willing to admit it or not, you, someone has come into your life, including you, and has written things in the wet semen of your soul. I can't lift that arm that high. The wet semen of your soul. And that semen is dried. And some of you, you're, you're saying, I, I am going to identify myself because I'm not going to be anything like my family. So now what's being written on your soul is your rebellion against everything your family stood for. And you've said, I'm never going to be like my mother. I'm never going to be like my father. I'm never going to be like my brothers and my sisters. So now what's written in the wet semen of your soul is rebellion against everything that you hated back here. Hmm. It's hard, isn't it? And the reason it's hard is because when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes crashing in to the present now, it requires that it has no competition with the past. Now let me try to explain it a little bit. In Matthew chapter 15 and in Mark chapter 7, Jesus makes it very clear that when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in, it's going to do war with your traditions, your good ones and your bad ones. Because it's asking us to put down everything that we've ever known and pick up something new. That's why the gospel is countercultural. Because it's calling us to yield ourselves to a new law, to a new way, to a new person, to a new family. And it's the family of Jesus Christ. That's why so often church is so boring. That's why we, sometimes when we open up the word, it just right over us. Because we're not letting anything challenge the laws that we've embraced and made of our own. Church doesn't have anything for me unless it's reinforcing what I've already accepted and believed. Now let me just say this last thing about the past. Some of you have experiences, all of us have experiences that still haunt us in the present. That our past sometimes are full of things 
like uh, failures, words, things that seem to creep into the moment that when we stand up to lead, we start hearing those words like stupid, ugly, fat, loser, almost, you'll never be. And these words in our past experiences can sabotage the leadership that God is calling us to have in the present. So we could talk about this for the next hour, but let me, I'm using this to get to a place. And let me say this, that God is not saying that we have to forget our past. Let me just say, you can't. I can't forget my past, you know? I mean, even God himself acknowledges that Moses is dead. I mean, Joshua is grieving. Joshua is, is, I mean, Joshua's grieving this man that he loved and he followed and served for 40 years. I mean, this is a hard time for this guy. But what God was saying is you can't get stuck in your past understanding. Grieve, but the grief allows us to move into the now. See, God is saying to Joshua, you were a servant of a great leader. And all you ever had to do was say to him, what do you want? But now you are the leader. So my past can serve me in the now, but it can also hold me prisoner. Does that make sense? How about the future? Let me just say this real quick, how the future comes in and robs us of the now. Some of us in this room, uh, we live our lives building expectations for the future. And we build so many expectations for the future that our hope and our trust and our security is found in things working out the way I expect them to work out. Some of you can't even go to a party without thinking through the conversations that you're going to have at that party and what you're going to say in those conversations. Some of you like that? Is that only me? Too much exposure. So we create plans, we create goals, and we create all kinds of schemes to make sure that things work out the way that we want them to work out. Because if things work out the way we expect them to work out, then it's going to be good, things are going to be safe, it's going to be happy. And there's nothing wrong with goals and there's nothing wrong with plans, but when we put our hopes and our goals and our plans to try to control what's going to happen in the future, our goals and our plans become our God. They become the things that we serve. They become the things that rob us of the now because we are so focused on the future. Another way the future kind of sucks life out of us is maybe we don't have expectations, we just have horrific disasters. That when we think about the future, that we are creating every possible disaster that can possibly happen in the future. That we're creating horror story after horror story after horror story of what's going to happen based on the evidence that I have in the present. Well, you're not married now, so you'll probably never get married. And so I'll probably be old and, you know, I'll have a bunch of cats. And so we make a commitment now that I will never buy a cat as long as I live. And then the whole catnip world uh, market crashes and it affects our economy all because of fear. No, and that fear begins to creep into the present. And what does it do to the present? That fear of a future that is uncertain and may never even happen creeps into the present now. And what does it do to now? It destroys the now. Because now I'm living in fear of a future that may never happen. 
And it robs me of the freedom that I have as a single person to live fully for the glory of the Lord for this stage of life that he has me in, even if this stage is the rest of my life. What if I fail and get kicked out of my program? What if I can't do the work that the professor wants from me? What if I don't make the grade and I have to go home because I can't stay in school? What if we never have children? What if we have too many children? What if our children don't turn out right? Now is controlled by a fear of a future that may never happen. Hmm. You know what's crazy about fear is crazy, the th- crazy thing about fear of the future when it creeps into the, pa- into the present now is it demands answers to questions that we believe if we have the answers to those questions, it's going to make the now okay. But what we don't understand is that fear asks all the wrong questions. So even if you get the answers to the questions that your fear is screaming and demanding for, it's not going to satisfy because they're the wrong questions. So what is the power of now? So let's go back to Joshua. Let me talk just for a few minutes about the power of this word and why God used this. Because what is God doing? Now this is great, this is profound. What is God doing in Joshua chapter 1? Does anybody see it? What is God doing? It's the simplest of answers. What's he doing? Anybody? He's speaking. The God of the universe is speaking. What's happening in the now? God speaks in the now. Now let me ask you, if God came down and spoke directly to you, like he's doing to Joshua right here, would that change anything for you? How many of you would ignore it because none of your friends would believe it and they'd all think you're crazy? I mean, most of us would take, we would say, okay, you got my attention. A number of years ago, Dave Burton and I uh, were asked to go to the Bahamas to uh, teach a youth leadership training retreat. Is Dave in here? All right, I think he's already gone home. Uh, no, so Dave's on staff. You've seen him up here before. And so we're there. It's a crazy story. And you know, now you're thinking Bahamas, you know, youth training, right? Right. And so... Uh, we uh, decided that on Sunday, right after church, we were going to go snorkeling. So we had signed up for, you know, a snorkeling, you know, boat ride out. And that thing started like at 1 o'clock, 1.30 something. And we were thinking, you know, we're going to church at like 8.30. And no problem. We'll get back plenty of time. So we're sitting in the church service. And it's hot, no air conditioning. It's the middle of the summer. And we're just melting in this place. And after four hours of worship... Literally, we're just, we're just hanging on by a thread, and we're falling in and out of sleep. We're trying to keep each other awake. We're drawing pictures. We're writing jokes to one another on the bulletin. You know, we're doing anything to try to stay engaged because we're the conference speakers. And uh, in the back of the room, we start hearing this right here. Yeah, it wasn't this right here. What was making the noise was this right here. And I am going to kill you white devils. And we look back, and this very large native of the Bahamas, in nothing but a Speedo, was coming through the back doors of the church, doing this right here, pointing at the two of us and saying, I'm going to kill you white devils. 
Dave turns to me and he goes, do you think he's talking to us? <laughs> you remember that? I said, dude, we're the only white people in here. We're about to die. And he walks all the way. I mean, he is walking all the way around because we're sitting over here. He's coming down here. He's walking. And here was the Twilight Zone experience. No one in the room was looking at him. The speaker up there is still preaching. I'm like, nobody sees this? There's a man coming down here threatening our lives and calling us white devils and is going to kill us. Nobody is even moving. And looking his direction. <laughs> Trust me, he had our full attention. Well, okay, I won't end the story there. Because when he got to the front, all the deacons stood up. He collapsed. They carried him out. And then after the service, you know, we're coming out shaking and sweating. And they're like, ah, yeah, he does that all the time. Okay, there's so many inappropriate jokes I can say right now, and I'm not going to, because I want to get to this point. If God interrupted this service right now, and he came clapping down the aisle, and he came... And somebody's going to have to do that for me. That hurts. Somebody do that. What? Clap for me, right? There you go. If he came walking down the aisle, and he's doing this right here. Okay, that was great. A little weak, but good. Would that get your attention? What does God have to do to get your attention? What does God, what trick does he have to pull out of his bag before you'll decide that you're going to give God attention in your life? Would it have to be that God audibly speaks to you? That he comes clapping down the middle of a surface? That he stops everything in your world and breaks your collarbone? I mean, what does it take for God to get your attention? Because God says something very profound here, and I want you to hear this, Midtown. God is still speaking today. He's speaking this morning. And he promises that he speaks through his word. Listen to what it says in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. All of it. It all is coming from the mouth of God. It is God speaking. And all of it is useful for you in teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. Why? So that you can be a good little churchgoer and you can be a good member of Midtown. No! What a small, weak view of what God is doing in your life. I would never have that view of your life that all God's trying to do is make you a good church member of Midtown for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. I don't want that. You don't want that. God doesn't want that. What is God doing? Listen, so that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God is saying, I am pouring into your life. I'm speaking into your life just like I did in Joshua's life. So that when you step into the calling of your life, the very thing that I have made you for, the journey and the adventure that I'm calling you to be strong and courageous in, when you step in that, you will be thoroughly equipped. Really? The Holy Spirit promises to speak through his word. In Hebrews 4 it says, For the word of God is living, 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 living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing of soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So what is God saying? If God is speaking, what is he saying to you? Let's go back to Joshua chapter 1. Listen to what it says. This is in verse 2, I believe. 
starting with now. Now then, he's saying this to Joshua, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot. As I promised Moses, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river of the Euphrates and the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So if God was speaking to Joshua, what was he saying to Joshua? And I want you to get the gist of it. Don't get lost in the Hittites and all the other ites. Get lost in this. God was saying to Joshua, I am a God of promise. And I keep my promises. And I'm calling you to be a man that lives as a child that has been born into the promise. And what is the promise? I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, what God was saying in this early part of Joshua is he is saying to Joshua, I made a promise to Abraham generations before you were ever born. And that promise was that I would give him a generation. I would give him a family as many as the stars in the heaven. And I promised him a land. And then that promise was passed on to Moses. And now that promise is coming to your doorstep. And in your doorstep and in your time, you're going to see the realization of that promise. God says, I'm a promise keeper. But the situation that Joshua was in was dire. I mean, they'd been wandering through the desert for 40 years. All they knew was slavery. They weren't professional soldiers. To the south of them were Egypt. And Egypt was not kind to them. I mean, come on, Pharaoh, you know, the whips, the chariots, the Red Sea, all that stuff. They didn't like the Israelites. Then to the east was, hang on, brother, those chairs are so comfortable, aren't they? <laughs> oh, let's just pray right now. Lord, protect his back and him suing us. <laughs> to the east were the Babylonians. The Babylonians didn't like the Israelites. To the north were the Hittites. The Hittites didn't like the Israelites. But into the promised land, there were seven tribes. And those seven tribes were known as these crazy, warring tribes. And for them to take the promised land, they had to take out the seven tribes. Here's what I can promise you. If you step up to lead, you will face opposition. You're going to face huge opposition. I don't care if you step up and say, Lord, I will surrender leadership to my moral life and the way I live my life for you. If you decide you're going to bring leadership to that area of your life, guess what? You will find temptation like you've never experienced before. If you decide to bring that into your marriage, I promise you, if you say, Lord, we want this marriage to be, to be solid rock on you, let you be the center of this home. You know what? You may fight more than you've ever fought before. When it comes to raising kids, well, raising kids is easy. That's not really a battle at all, is it? <laughs> all the mothers in here. When you try to raise your kids, it's, that's why they say parenting is not for cowards. Because it is hard work to love someone into maturity. It is hard work to endure with them and persevere and stand with them as they go through this and this and this and have dreams for them and hopes for them and try to bring leadership into that area of their lives. Whether it's your company, whether it's your home, or whether it's your own heart, the situation is dire. 
In Romans chapter 4, it says, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offsprings received the promise that he would be heirs of the world, but through the righteousness that comes from faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, listen to this, if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. See, what he's saying here in Romans chapter 4 is he's saying something very powerful. You are not the linchpin to the promise. In other words, we're not the power of the promise. If you're the power of the promise, then that promise is going to be pretty weak because we're weak in our power. If we're the keepers of the promise, we're in big trouble. If God is saying you only get the promise if you do certain things or if you keep certain laws or if you're good at this or good at this or good at this, then I'll give you. Like Santa Claus, you know, when you're good little boys and girls, Santa Claus is going to come and visit you. But if you're not, you get switches. That is conditional. And God is saying here that my promises is not conditional upon you. It's conditional on something much greater. And that is that Jesus did it right. That Jesus did it all right. That when he went to the cross, he purchased something with us, for us. And it's the power of the cross that it is finished. And those of us that have put our trust in Christ's finished work on the cross and the power of his resurrection, now we are those that have been moved out of the place of the curse into the place of the promise. Now we stand in a place of promise because we stand with Jesus. And Jesus, it says in Scripture, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And if I'm in Christ, then all the promises of God are yes to me. To me. If you're in Christ, all the promises of God are yes to you. God is speaking his promises through Christ in the now. See, let me think about this for a minute. Just go with me. You know, a lot of people go to church and they read the Bible and, and you know, they want to they wanna have this thing with Jesus because, I mean, nobody wants to die and go to hell. I mean, come on. I mean, we want to go to heaven, you know? But what are you going to do when you get to heaven? Like, what is it that God's going to do for you in heaven? I mean, are we going to be floating around, you know, on, you know, clouds? And, I mean, are we just going to be in a, like, a 10 billion year worship service? I don't know if I could handle that, you know, swaying for like 10 billion years, you know? How long could you hold your hands up in praise in heaven? I don't, okay, that's, is that what this is? Well, I don't know. I know there's going to be some great wine drinking in heaven. I mean, Jesus says that. I'm not going to drink and partake of the vine until you're with me. He's aging it. It's awesome. I know. What is the greatest thing in heaven? God. And what's the greatest gift he gives us in heaven? Himself. He is saying, you were made for me. And now I've given you my holiness. And when you die, when you come to me, then we will be in unity together, in unison, and I will give you me. We have fellowship with the Father. And that's why maybe you've heard this in other churches, is this, that if you're in Christ now, heaven doesn't start when you die. It begins now. Eternity is now because Christ is in us, the hope of glory. And because Christ is in me, the scriptures say it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And because he is in me now, I too, like Christ, am a child of the promise. And he's saying the same thing to us that he said to Joshua. And that is, remember. 
that you're a child of the promise. Live in the promise. How do we do that? Last thing. Isaiah chapter 30, it says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Here is the amazing thing. When I live in the now, I begin to hear my God speak. And what he speaks is promise. And when he begins to speak his promises to me, I become a bold leader. Because I'm not living out of fear anymore of what the future may or may not hold. And I'm not living as a prisoner of the past anymore. Now the past becomes something that serves the present to better help me understand the promises of God rather than imprisoning the present to where I can't believe anything that God's saying to me. It's funny, I was talking to uh, George Landolt this week. He sent me this, I'd like to read it to you. He said, the promise of yes in Christ draws us into the now of God by extending the privileges of trust and suffering simultaneously in war peace. The struggle is still stillness and will always be. The promise reveals the purpose out of which goals are spiritually born that give glory to someone greater than ourselves. This can be done only this can be done on any level by anyone who will center in Christ and align themselves in the order and control of the spirit by faith. What does that mean? It means that if I'm willing to step in to be one of those that dares to believe that God is speaking today. And as he speaks to me, he's speaking promise to me. And as he speaks that promise to me, it doesn't leave me frozen on the couch to where I do nothing. Now it explodes me into a world that is waiting for me to live out that life of one who lives like one who's a child of the promise. You know, uh, it's funny. If uh, some of you have seen me at Exit Inn, sometimes I go there for shows. Uh, and I just want to warn you right now, if you ever see me there and there's a band on the stage playing and you're talking to me and I'm smiling and I'm doing that, right, that, like, yes, I don't understand a word you're saying. I can't hear anything in there. When there's a band going, I am just like, yeah, right, you know, yeah, yeah, what, you know? But there's something magical about coming out of there and uh, your ears are ringing and it's combined with the silence of the street. You know that experience when you come out and you've, You've heard nothing but for the last four hours and you walk out and and you still hear the ringing. That's what we're talking about this morning. That we would step out of the shouting of our past and step out of the shouting of the fear of the future and that we would step into the peace and quiet and stillness of the now. That right now God is speaking and what he is whispering is promise. And what is he saying? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? This is what I want to ask you this morning. As a leader, as someone that God is using in your world, in this city, in this place, are you willing to step into the now? Are you willing to hear what God has to say to you? Are you willing to hear his words as he speaks contrary words even to your past and gives you new words to wear? Or he gives you peace now to where the future doesn't matter anymore? Whatever it may have for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you, Father, for the families that you've given us, the experiences that we've had. 
all the things that make up our story that have brought us to this moment and this time right here, right now. From, Lord, the great successes to the happiest moments of our lives to even the deepest struggles, to the deepest challenges. We thank you, Father, for all those things. Because as we sit in them now, Father, even in maybe our frustration and confusion, and we listen to the now, we hear a father, a dad, who is saying, I will work all that out for the good. Because you love us. I pray, Father, that you'd surround us with a community of friends that helps us better understand the messages from our past that we can speak the gospel over. Lord, surround us with friends that help us fight to rob away the fear of the future and help us to be in the present where you say you will never leave us and you'll never forsake us. We will not be afraid. And then let us lead, Father, as those that lead as ones that are loved. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.